0: Hello, and welcome to Contemplations. I am joined by Harry. Hello! And I'm Josh. And today we are going to be talking about who our political friends and enemies are, with a particular focus on the friend-enemy distinction of Klaus Schmidt. And I said Carl his name- Klaus Schmidt! <laughs> <laughs> that fella. Off to a good
1: start, I've are we? Right? I've read his book. I oh, and you've got Klaus Schwab behind you. It's just Germans. He's, he's They're all
0: looming things. over you. I think his influence <laughs> is affecting you. <laughs> i'm gonna keep that in there just because it's funny um but the the idea is that through understanding who to regard as friend and enemy which um what's his name carl schmidt carl schmidt god he made an impact on you didn't he i know yeah well it's not exactly a revelation to to see people as friends and enemies but we'll be talking about the intricacies that's the interesting part anyway um but the point being is that um if you want to have as much agency in politics as possible, if you want to enact as much political change as you can, you kind of want to be able to have a very good idea of who your political friends are and who your enemies are. And I think the most fundamental distinction is on those lines. And it seems very, very intuitive to me. And it always kind of surprised me that people um, would talk about Karl Schmidt's ideas. Um, on in this area in particular, as some sort of like revelation. Well, if I, I can cut I'm in, I, I would like
1: to make some comments on this because I've heard the sorts of statements they're making right now before, and I think the thing is, for one, the right constantly needs to be reminded about friend enemy because the right has historically been terrible at choosing allies that actually have any good intentions towards them the right Mm. as everybody knows has been consistently dragged left and left and left over the past 60 or so years if not even longer than that so That's something that i've been trying to focus on recently with some of the work that i've been doing and the other thing is as well uh, obviously it's intuitive that people instinctually split themselves into factions people will ally with those who uh, are more on their side against people who are against their side and this
0: is a sorry to cut you off but it's a very fundamental aspect of human nature it's pretty much unavoidable you're not going to ever really get rid of tribalism as long as human beings stay as they are
1: yes i think the important part with schmidt is the place that he puts it in primacy of politics as being the thing that even comes before politics and that defines politics itself, and the way that his analysis unfolds as a result of that, because he puts it as, as you would say, that friend-enemy people splitting themselves into factions that have the same interests is the most fundamental f- part of uh, human societal formation, which is what causes everything everything else to flow outside of it.
0: Absolutely, no, I, I very much agree,
1: and so. Um, just to, just to get into a little bit of the details before you do, I believe that sure. this work is where he started talking about it initially, was the mm-hmm. concept of the political. And it seems because Carl Schmitt was a German jurist in the Weimar Republic mm-hmm. that it seems that he was responding to a political discussion that was going on amongst other jurists at the mm-hmm. time when they were discussing what is politics, what is the political, what is the concept that is foundational to all of politics. And he points out in this a, a number of times that people talk about politics without defining exactly what it is. So this was his attempt to define that and make it concrete whilst also putting in a critique of liberalism as
0: he was seeing it at the time as well. Mm -hmm. No, I I very much agree with your interpretation there. And I think it'd actually be quite beneficial to talk about who was Carl Schmitt. And normally I don't do this sort of thing. I, I think the important thing is the ideas rather than the person behind them. But the person behind them could be perceived as controversial, but I'm we going to. We do need to
1: address this, or else people will bring it up.
0: Yes. So, as you alluded to, he was a German jurist, political theorist, and a professor of law um, at a university. And he was known for his works in lots of different fields in that area, such as constitutional law, political philosophy, international law. And just to give you an idea of the timeline, he was born in 1888 and died in 1985. Long life, actually.
1: Lived a very long time, yeah.
0: Yeah. Um, but you'll notice there um, some very important periods in German history. And um, yes, he he did join the Nazi party um, in yes. 1933, the same time as Heidegger. And of course, Heidegger has also now been sanitized. He's okay to talk about in philosophy departments. And the same sort of things happened with Schmidt. But I'm going to go into a bit more detail about that later on. But um, he wrote several works where he explicitly defended nazi policies this was earlier on um and after the fact his explanation of it whether you take this uh, take him at his word is up to you but he claimed he was just trying to provide his own understanding for nazi ideas um and he is someone who does try and understand ideas sorry um
1: yeah certainly with that i have seen people like james lindsay and other supposed allies of the right wing try to dismiss carl schmidt's ideas purely as being something that is used to justify Nazi atrocities and justify Nazi tribalism and politics in the way that they conceptualized it. Uh, This work was written in 1932, before he was part of the Nazi party. Mm -hmm. And as far as I see it, I would believe him to a certain level on his explanation, because certainly this work is not uh, an explicit statement of how things should be. He no. says repeatedly throughout this, I'm sure it would be nice if we could have the liberal depoliticization of everything. I'm sure that would create an entirely new world which would look completely alien to us in the way that people relate to one another politically. But he is describing that that's not possible. He's not- trying
0: to be a political realist, really. Is Yes, and he refers he to, put- uh,
1: later on in the work, just to give a quote from this, and let me just find this here. He essentially states that Every other political theorist that he thinks is worthwhile has had a very negative view of human nature. If you're going to talk about human nature in the way that people view it, you can look at the Thomas Sowell um, antithesis, the way that he looks at it versus the constrained and the more liberal ideas of human nature and the constrained vision is the more conservative one, where you have a rather negative view of human nature.
0: That is very much mine, by the way.
1: The Hobbesian view, and Carl Schmitt was very much a Hobbesian. He has specific works detailing Mm -hmm. the ideas of Hobbes, one of which came later on in his time in the Nazi party in 1938, which some have suggested was a stealth critique of Nazi policies. Let me just find this particular quote here. It's completely losing it all of a While sudden. While you're having yeah, a
0: quick look, um, it's worth mentioning as well, uh, as uh, as views of human nature go, I think when we talk about, you know, having a dim view of human nature, it's more about whether people are intuitively good or not. This is a, a debate that's been going on in philosophy for quite some time. Like Rousseau believed that um, people were innately good and society made them evil. And I think it's the other way around, actually. People are innately evil, they're innately selfish, and they are educated into being good people. And I think that many of you, um, you don't necessarily need to have trawled the psychological literature like I have. You can look at your own understanding of the people that you know, and you'll be able to see the fact that, yes, the people who are good people, that are moral people, that are kind, have had to work very hard and their parents had to work hard or whoever raised them had to work hard to make them that way and i think that that's a realistic view of human nature and i don't think many people on our side of the aisle politically would Certainly deny not. this
1: i would say that conservatives and people who put themselves on the right wing of politics are those with the it, it's described as inherently negative view mm. of human nature, but I would just describe it as the inherently realistic view of human nature. Because yeah, it's, it's I, only
0: negative if you are, are cynical about it. I right? think
1: characterising it in a moral sense denies the fact that this is just unchangeable. Mm. Uh, uh, socialists and liberals, since the French Revolution, have tried to socially engineer people in a way that will change the very foundation, the ve- uh, the very nature of human na- of human life. Uh, which has shown itself time and time again to be a completely impossible task. Well, there was
0: the whole concept of Homo Sovieticus or Soviet Man, and uh, they just realised, well, that doesn't work. It, you it can't doesn't work. You can't educate people out of their deeply seated biological impulses,
1: and you cause a lot of misery in trying to do so. I have do, found yeah. the quote that I was looking for. Go ahead. Yeah, where he's, he's talking here about the. Uh, differences between the two views of human nature. He says, part of the theories that postulates which presuppose man to be good is liberal, and he gives some explanations of the different variations that, that can take from all the way going from anarchist theories of state to the more moderate liberal states. Whereas, and then he goes, what remains is the mar- remarkable and for many, certainly disquieting diagnosis that all genuine political theories presuppose man to be evil, i.e. by no means an unproblematic, but a dangerous and dynamic being. This can be easily documented in the works of every specific political thinker, insofar as they reveal themselves as, as such, they all agree on the idea of a problematic human nature, no matter how distinct they are in rank and prominent in history. It suffices here to cite Machiavelli, Hobbes, Busset, Victor, as soon as he forgets his humanitarian idealism, De Maistre, Donoso Cortez, H. Tain and Hegel, who to be sure at times has shown his double face. So he's just saying they're All of the political theory that he thinks is relevant and actually uh, explanatory of human behavior takes that inherently negative view of human nature. And he also points out that Schmidt himself was a Catholic. Mm -hmm. He points out that it does have a lot to do with the religious nature of a lot of these people. Certainly pre-19th century, pre-early 20th century, the vast majority of political thinkers will be coming at it from a purely religious perspective perspective like for instance he mentions demestra there demestra also a catholic viewed everything through mm-hmm. the eyes of providence As he but saw i didn't it.
0: see the fingerprints of catholicism necessarily in the concept of the political it seems no. like almost like a secular political analysis not that you know religion well, it's a, it's necessarily very, needs to come into it at all it's a juristic
1: well, le- that's a true, political yeah. analysis you can see that he is legalistic in his thinking because he's very straight and blunt and to the point one of the things I coming like back that, to yeah. this text Uh, this was the second time going through it, was it reminded me how straightforward his language is when going through the whole thing. It was very interesting to see how just easy to understand a lot of his ideas Mm -hmm. were. But on on that basis of the religious nature, specifically Christian, that a lot of these people were coming from, Christianity starts with the... Found, um, you know, foundation of original sin. Man is inherently sinful, and from there they build the rest of their belief system about how human beings act. And so you can you can certainly see the parallels between that and the more negative view of human nature. Man is something mm-hmm. rotten at the core that needs to be made better, possibly by society and possibly by the state around it.
0: It's one of those things that the the realm of, of science and religion actually agree on, and it's the the midwits in the middle. So the- <laughs> yes where are you of us.
1: placing the uh, science
0: and religion on that bell curve um they're both on the same side Oh, okay <laughs> just to... I'm being very diplomatic yes they're on the on the clever side but um to be fair to be religious in this modern age you've got to be quite um sort of of conviction you've you've got to really know why you believe what you believe because there are so many forces trying to undermine it so I think people in the modern day who are religious are um a lot more intelligent than they perhaps would have been in the past
1: certainly you you are right that you have to have conviction i believe peter hitchens who's very religious said that he began as an atheist and he reasoned himself into his religious <laughs> beliefs which is quite an interesting take because not a mm-hmm. lot of people do but i i for one i know that you don't necessarily approve of this but i recently began believing in god whatever you want to call it, a higher power
0: i didn't even know that
1: oh well i did sorry to break it to you i've come out of the closet I'm no longer a cringe atheist like yourself. I'm not cringe. I
0: don't really care what people (laughs) believe.
1: I'm joking. Uh, But for me, that came from a position of rationality, was me observing the world around Mm -hmm. me. And also, to be honest, uh, reading the works of Demetri as well, but that's a different conversation.
0: Mm -hmm. But to carry on with Schmidt's life, um, in 1936, he was severely criticised by an SS publication, was only able to retain his position at the University of Berlin, which I think he had been appointed relatively recently, perhaps through... You know, Nazi um, recommendation, um, and he only kept that position because of the protection of Hermann Göring. So he did have some admirers high up in the party. That much is true, but he spent much of his uh, years of Nazi rule continuing his work at university. So he was basically just an academic in Germany. He, he so was... to accuse him of crimes would be dishonest. And in I fact, mean, he... the Allies did didn't prosecute him. Uh,
1: He was questioned during Nuremberg, I believe, Mm -hmm. but then managed to acquit himself very well, so they didn't do anything. Also, he quit the Nazi party in 1938, I believe, which is years and years before anything like the Holocaust was Mm -hmm. initiated, so he can't be Implement, uh, implicated in any of that and funnily enough people do point out that he did have quite a few jewish friends before joining the nazi party <laughs> i'm
0: not racist i've got black friends <laughs>
1: and then when he started he was just like i'm not friends with you guys anymore so i don't know what was going on there perhaps he did become overwhelmed with the I- ideology to begin with but mm-hmm. then it eventually faded especially because being a catholic the nazis actually weren't very fond of christianity of any sect so i doubt that won him very many friends
0: no certainly not um
1: But what this is all just to say as well, just once again, I I don't want to keep bringing him up, but James Lindsay has completely dismissed him purely off of the back of, oh, he was part of the Nazi party. Oh, his ideas justified Nazi atrocities. No, they did not. He was describing the situation as he saw it. He was was saying, here is humanity and here is my analysis of it. Mm -hmm. He wasn't going, here is humanity. As I see it, here's what should happen. He was being descriptive, not prescriptive.
0: I think we can also understand people's ideas without necessarily agreeing of with course. what they believed, right? I, w- I was talking to Dan in a recording for Brokenomics yesterday. Um, this is at the time of recording. but um, yeah, I was explaining Lenin's rationale in the Russian Revolution, and you know, I've read Lenin's writing. You can read him. I think he's a terrible human being, but I read his ideas, understood he was the, an
1: incredibly and- successful revolutionary.
0: Yeah, and there are there are observations in there that are interesting. And it's also interesting just to understand the minds of the people at the time. I mean, it could well be a window into mid-century Germany sort of pre-war, which is interesting in and of itself. But I don't think there's anything there that's actually that unique to that time period necessarily. I think actually um, the part of the re- the appeal of Schmidt is that his writing... Um, it can apply some, to all times and all it places. It has some timeless qualities to it, although there are elements, um, as you've pointed out to me before, that are of its time as well.
1: There, there is, like I say, some juristic discussion near, the, nearer the beginning of this particular writing where he's referring to a lot of other jurists who, like I mentioned, are all talking about the different ideas of politics. But mm-hmm. once again, he's trying to get to the core of the issue. He's going, okay, we keep talking about politics. What does that mean beyond anything? Because his first statement is just the outright, is saying that if you're talking about the state, the concept of the state presupposes the concept of the political. So everybody understands the state is the organization within society that has the monopoly on politics. What's politics? Mm -hmm. Because there must be something political before you have the state to necessitate the state in the first place.
0: The state, enemy. <laughs> <laughs> Depends
1: on the state who's running the state that's who
0: i care even about even if i'm running it i'm the only person involved it's still the enemy <laughs> no <laughs> I, i'm joking know. i'm being facetious of course but um to go back to schmidt again um so before and after the war academics spoke highly of karl schmidt's ideas and um this was has been something that has continued for a long time he was well respected before any having any involvement in you know national socialist politics and i think it's fair to say that his um, analysis before and after can be looked at as a, a separate thing and sure you can look at his, his writing in that window but also he was kind of disenfranchised and criticized heavily and could have even potentially been purged at one point were it not for goering so I think he he recognized that actually they were enemy, ironically. Certainly to him, yes. Yes, which um, he he did fall foul to his own sort of dichotomy there to a certain extent. Well,
1: that's one of the difficulties of political reality is that you don't always Mm -hmm. get a good
0: grasp of who your enemies are until it might be too late. Well, sometimes the information is simply not available to you. You make an informed choice, it seems like the right choice, and many people might make the same choice in the same circumstances. I I know that feels a bit weird talking about a man who joined the Nazi party but in in sort of I mean once again in a hypothetical
1: just just to bring up um, a comparative one um, and this is uh, this is quite funny itself a lot of the um, suffragettes joined the the, uh, British Union of Fascists in the 1930s (laughs) under Oswald mostly
0: I have heard about this sort of in a cursory way before, but it never ma- fails it, to make me laugh. It, Just- it,
1: it's quite amusing to me because once again, people these days, they wouldn't say anything about, negative about the suffragettes, even though many of them were out-and-out terrorists of their time, but then they wouldn't mention that because apparently joining a failed political party in England that, yeah, aligned itself with an organisation that you uh, with, with European movements that might be distasteful to you is worse than actually being terrorists so i think the morality of that is completely skewed mm-hmm. as far as i'm concerned
0: it does add some more truth to the term feminazi though although <laughs> although national socialism and fascism are two distinct they, they are distinct things and mm. uh, just to put some
1: historical context in there fascism wasn't really associated with the nazis until around 38 when mussolini made the absolutely terrible decision of aligning himself with hitler that turned out to be a bad move in the long run
0: lots of mussolini's decisions were terrible to be fair i mean invading Greece. i I don't know why we're talking about this we're not talking about world war ii
1: (laughs) (laughs) or (laughs) pre-world war ii
0: his decision to invade ethiopia and greece didn't go too well yeah they weren't great um but for example um to to illustrate just how rehabilitated schmidt has been uh, many of the frankfurt school um, known socialists, many of whom were explicit Marxists and Jewish, um, spoke highly of him um, after the, he joined the Nazi party even. So that, that seems strange to someone who's trying to say, hang on a minute, he's this, this terrible far-right figure. I mean, not that Nazis are really far-right, they're revolutionaries, it's difficult to put them on that axis, right? Yes. But um, people like Walter Benjamin especially were actually big fans of his work. And um, he was well regarded kind of across the political spectrum in his day. Um, he's also influenced the European left and right and the American right in his explanations of how politics works. That's obviously a very general statement. And I don't think we have the time today to go into that. I would honestly
1: say he's probably influenced the left a lot more lastingly than he influenced the well, right. Well, I think um, the, the influence the have- there
0: isn't necessarily direct. It's not like they're all reading Carl Schmitt. But I would
1: say when it comes to the distinction of friend and enemy, that the mm-hmm. left have done a much better job at I very much agree, yeah. than the right have. Because the left, they know... they, they you, We all know how willing they are to just purge anyone that deviates even the slightest bit from mm-hmm. their main uh, prescriptions. So they know how to dissociate themselves from people that they identify as their own enemies.
0: Mm. And I'm not one for reductionist uh, two-factor categorizations. Sorry, that's a bit academic and wordy. But... Um, generally speaking the the left are more emo- emotional and the right are more sort of cold and and thinking as a sort of general trend in that the left tend to put a higher premium on emotion than the right does um as a as a sort of rule of thumb and therefore um because the sort of distinction between friend and enemy tends to be emotive first and then subject to introspection later. I'll
1: agree with um, your characterization of the left there. I would say that for a long time, the right, or at least the mainstream right, those who have been given access to political power, have been not necessarily cold in thinking, but more passive and Mm. just wanting to get along because they uh, attend all of the same events and know all of the same people who are part of the left sphere. They've wanted to make sure that they don't lose their place at the table. So they've been more than willing to just go along with whatever the left is doing if, as long as it keeps them mm-hmm. in a certain level of social capital. So they've been so uh, politically passive, but it's only in recent years with a lot of the things to do with the trans issues where the emotiveness of the right has come out a lot. Those who were emotive on the right in the past and wanted to more... Um, strictly push out people they saw as the enemies tended to be on the christian right who at the time didn't have any political power and were often just mocked by those what what, what lasting change were they able to affect other um, than going on television and complaining about mm. video games even people like hillary clinton when she was in power who agreed broadly with some of the statements that they were making about video games wasn't able really to affect any changes
0: mm. i think particularly in the sort of 80s and 90s they'd helped um shift the political paradigm somewhat and policy was shaped um through the lens of appealing to this rather large voting block and I think that
1: i i I don't see it having any major lasting effect except probably
0: in, well most politics doesn't have a lasting effect i mean it's everything is is leftist
1: politics seems to
0: well, for now, Harry. For
1: now, hopefully, hopefully that'll change. But We're
0: working on it.
1: I think, I think, just to close off the video game aspect mm-hmm. of this. Sure, just yeah, to Go ahead. Mention, I think the only places where you could really say that had a major effect, and I don't, I wouldn't even attribute this to the Christian conservatives in America mm-hmm. in, in the nineties more than to just the social attitudes of the places. is probably Germany and Australia. They're really censorious of video games, but those are really the only places and the only major case I can think of in. The UK and the US is probably Manhunt 2 of a game that was massively censored
0: quite a long time ago wasn't it yeah it's a long time ago
1: it's very uh, tame in comparison to most games now it only came out the year before Dead Space as well which is an incredibly gory and brutal yeah I was gonna
0: say um, but just to to kind of build off of the point that you made earlier appealing to people's emotions particularly people who aren't especially engaged in politics is actually a very effective um, rhetorical strategy as well um when someone follows politics very closely they're normally pretty savvy to appeals to emotion i know that i pick up on it quite a lot when i'm listening to people speak about politics and i kind of see it as kind of a bit underhanded it's like in a a game of of football as in football in the english sense um and someone you know dives or something (laughs) like that it's kind of like oh come on um,
1: I, I see it as just the way to appeal to uh, the humanity of the people that you're speaking mm-hmm. to. At the end of the day, we're not robots. We don't operate like the Tories would like us to on just going, well, I guess everything's fine. My daughter might have just been raped in a <laughs> in a high rise in Rotherham, but at least that line of GDP is going up. Mm. This is something um, Rothbard spoke about when he was talking about how the libertarians should appeal to people's emotions when they go and try and run for political office places he said what's going to work better is it going to be i go up and give them an incredibly dry boring speech about statistics or do i get up and i say we need to take our country back and use emotive language that's why trump was so successful he mm-hmm. came out and he said exactly what people wanted to hear
0: mm-hmm. if i were to run for office which i have no intention of ever doing despite being dressed for it yeah that's true um <laughs> um i would probably couch things as do you want to make your own decisions or would you like some bureaucrat in Whitehall who's probably some vegan weirdo to make them for you? If you want to have any agency over your life then vote for me.
1: <laughs> I, would, I would come out and scream do you, uh, brothers and sisters, do you want your country back? And then people would cheer, the banners would fall behind me, but that's for later.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Which banners would be behind <laughs> you, Harry? <laughs> Only joking. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, Yes, um, the point being of going for his background is, despite you know having a history that may seem questionable to some, he's obviously a valuable thinker that is regarded as such by most people who have got into political theory most in the Most serious
1: place. political thinkers would certainly be very, very silly to dismiss his ideas. And he was rehabil- uh, rehabilitated in the 1980s mm-hmm. by a number of Jewish scholars, including Paul Gottfried. In fact, to the point that... George Swab, the man who writes the introduction and translated this work into English for this edition, is Jewish. Mm-hmm. So just dismissing him off of the back of, oh, he was part of the Nazi party is a very, very silly thing to do.
0: Absolutely. So I think it's probably time to finally get into the friend-enemy distinction after we put all of those caveats. seemingly unnecessary caveats in there. But we, we've we got to uh, cover our behinds in this line of work, unfortunately. But... um. Yes, he sort of formalised the notion um, of the friend-enemy distinction um, to what he refers to as the liberal notion that laws apply to people equally, which I think is quite an interesting observation, actually, in that he was saying, well, there's this liberal consensus, which you touched on, he disapproved of. And he wanted to highlight the fact that, yeah, laws will never apply to people equally because the people in power Uh, selectively enforce it and um, he basically said the sovereign is he who decides the exception.
1: That's one of his different works in
0: political theology but yes yes. that is correct. Um, I I, I did read um, a few extracts from that but I haven't actually read the full I mean that
1: also plays into this because he was writing this after political theology so those ideas are already taken for granted Mm -hmm. in this.
0: But um, what that means the sovereign it doesn't necessarily mean monarch although it, it is taken to mean that in the modern context. What what it means is just the ruler is those who decide the exception to the rules.
1: Well, he also defines in that particular work and references a number of times in this that the exception is what defines the rule. He's often speaking about antithesis and he was mm-hmm. somebody who seemingly understood Hegel. So I'd imagine that some parts of the antithesis contradictions elements influenced his thinking on this, but he essentially says you can only know the rule because it is defined by Mm -hmm. its antithesis, by the exception. Because if you have freedom, what is freedom without not freedom, without oppression and captivity? And what is what are those similarly without their opposite? You can't have one thing without its direct opposite. Which is um but just a I've got an excellent quote from this work on that that on the concept that you just mentioned which was he just states very succinctly the sovereignty of law means only the sovereignty of men who draw up and administer this law something everybody needs to take into account at all times it's not what it says on paper it's who's interpreting and who's administering what it Mm -hmm. says on paper
0: and it's a a very um, stark example as well because of course he's a jurist and he would be well aware of how laws looked on paper and how they were actually applied in practice in reality. And it's almost to the point whereby the the paper thing is somewhat relevant, but it's not nearly as important as how it's actually applied in practice. I think that this is a very important distinction to make in modern politics because there's a lot of sort of um, face-saving PR dress-up of stuff that sounds really nice and it's kind of wishy-washy and when it's actually applied, it's tyrannical and horrifying. Like, like, the- like
1: you said, Whitehall are often the people administering these and it's mm. probably going to be a blue-haired vegan weirdo who mm-hmm. ends up administering a law. So a law could say, you're going to get puppies and instead you get some disease-ridden, feral uh, creature put- shoved through your door because <coughs> these people are spiteful and they absolutely despise you.
0: Well, yes.
1: I mean, for, for instance, on this this point, um, the Equalities Act from 2010 has a particular part of it that's marked out. I think the first section of it talks about the need to in-house a sort of socio-economic equality, which essentially means communism. The only reason that we've not had communism just outright implemented in the UK is because when the Tories came in, despite everything, they did not explicitly implement that part of the Equalities Act. They've done a fantastic job administering the rest of it, Because it helps to destroy any opposition that they Mm. might have in the political sphere because it's the one that gives you all of the protected characteristics and also helps to further enshrine the Equalities and Human Rights Commission as an organisation that can, at will, without having anybody external to them put in a complaint or put forward a lawsuit for them, they can come into your business and say, you aren't equal enough as we define it according to
0: these Mm -hmm. terms. Thank you for watching that clip from my series Contemplations. If you want to sign up to the website for £5 a month, you can access that series, which comes out 1pm every Saturday. Thank you for watching, and goodbye.